This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. I'm looking for a format from Lava Malka. So I think by Chassidim there's a minute that you say Sipur Tzadikim on Lava Malka. Um, it, to be to do Sipur Tzadikim, you have to be a Achsidish Yigaman. It's not. Uh, but I thought going doing by devoting each Lava Malka to a biographical sketch of a Godel, um, and then the Godel and a Tkufa. It's more than just a person, but with Kufa and things like that, like, I think would be helpful. And I felt I would take somebody whose yard site comes out that month. Usually we'll have it around um, Shabbos Zavarchim time or Shkodesh time. So we'll pick somebody whose yard site is going to be. So um, Monday night is a Baron Kotler's yard site. Tuesday's is yard site based Kislev. So I felt it's something that, it's, it's, it's a biography of a Godel that's very relevant to us. It's somebody who really, the fact that we're all here is due to him. Um, so I wanted to sketch out a little bit and talk about it. Um, he was born in 1892 in a small town called Soslovich. His mother died when he was three years old. His father died when he was nine, ten, eleven, not clear. And there's an expression in Yiddish, there's something called a Kailach Tikiyasim which means a yasa for both father and mother. Unfortunately, um, people had short life expectancy in Europe, and people would be somen. And he was, it was left to an uncle to raise him, and he had a brother and a sister who um, are important to know because they played a, a difficult role in his life. Um, he was brilliant. He was off the chart brilliant. He, he was... He was uh, a Goyen Olam, and at a young age was very nicker. Um, his tefisa was lightning, lightning quick, extraordinarily quick. His memory was was astounding. Um, his power of focus, concentration was was extraordinary. He also was very, very sharp, very, very sharp, and um, very animated. Um, he, he, his his personality was intense beyond words. And um, that was his person. A child growing up like that, so you know, he finished his. He, he knew Tanakh by the time he was seven, eight years old, Balpeh, and then they got him a Gemara Rebbe. At that time, in the turn of the century, in Europe, um, Torah Judaism was retreating really fast, and the. In the, since the beginning of the century before, or the middle of the century before, there had been tremendous opportunities for Jews to study university. The, 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 the non-religious, the secular people, the secular movements were on the rise, and they tore away everything good in Kali Yisrael. Any kid that was bright, somebody absorbed him and swept him, and convinced him to go to university, to, to, to you know, first you start by studying yourself, take entrance exams, and so on. And it really was wrecking, um, it was wrecking uh, Yisrael. He was no exception. He was a brilliant, a genius, and he learned, uh, you know, so first he had Rebbeim, and then there would be, they would learn in what's called a Klois, like a group of Vachim would get together in like a Beis and they'd learn together. Those places were not good. 
because um, nobody was on top of it so you had one Moscow come in and begin to disseminate his version of the way the world should be and swept everybody in the 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 that was the old system of learning was everybody got together everybody sat and learned and learning was the important thing and that was that the, the people don't understand exactly the Musa movement besides learning Musa it also created a yeshiva with a very clear authority structure you had a mashkiach running it most of the time the mashkiach was the dominant figure he would look into what Bachman were doing he would try to weed out those who were very bad influences he would try to work the other Bachrim. The Muslim movement generated a lot of opposition. Part of it was because of this. Mashkichim um, were tough, and somebody that they felt was rotten, they threw out. And in people were very... It was a tremendous amount of turmoil. The people that were revolutionaries, they either became communists, or, or, or Zionists, or secularists. They were very, very adamant in, in Lishma, in trying to get people to, to and he himself, Rebaran, was Mushba to some degree. Um, he actually knew he knew um, uh, Russian literature uh, well. Supposedly, there wasn't a famous book that he hadn't read. He, he never he never displayed it. It wasn't something that he that he was he didn't want to share it. He was he had turned against it. But um, somebody quoted a line from him. And he said, "That's Pushkin's line. That you, you know, it's a." Uh, but he was of. Um, he had been affected by it. His sister and brothers were not from anymore. His sister was a brilliant mathematician, and she did her best to convince him to leave learning. Uh, leaving learning meant becoming fry, assimilated, totally. There wasn't. There was nothing. There was no mixed bags. Everything went. Somebody he somebody he had moved to Minsk because that's where his uncle lived. Somebody there, Ruben Grazovsky, who later became our first Adam, was a very starker person, and he schlepped him to Slabotka. He had been in Slabotka a year before by in by Rochfer, come back to come to, to Minsk. He schlepped him to the Alta Slabotka. The Alta Slabotka was a, 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 he he was the master. Mumcham people, Mavenham people, and Rebaran by him was the apple of his eye. He said, he and he did everything he, he could to encourage him to keep away any bad influence. And um, the letters, his sister would come, would send him letters that he should leave this nonsense, nothing will happen to him, the only thing that will happen is he'll end up in some bench someplace in, a, in, a, in an old stable with cobwebs on him. He should come to university, and he will be a, a name, a, a, a world famous in, in her field, mathematics. The altar intercepted those letters, um, threw them out, and had somebody send letters back to her that she should stop sending letters, Peshem Baron Kotler, that he doesn't want to hear from her, and she should please get out of his life. Um, th- that was the matzah. Um, you know, like we spoke about, Ibnava Tetabo, Mikish Tetapo, you need to, um, you, you need to, you know, that was needed at the time. He was a young boy, he was a, a Yosem, he was very impressionable, and the Alta watched over him like a hawk, and he felt this is going to be a, a, the future of Kaiser, and he was right. As, a, as, a, as, a, as an added note, 
his sister survived the war. She she was a professor in Paris, and her job was to help doctoral candidates prepare their dissertations. That was her job in the university. She survived the war. She ended up in America in her later years. Um, Rebbe Aaron took care of her. She was single. She never got married. Rebbe Aaron, um, when was, she was in an old age home, she lived very old in Queens. He used to come with his wife, Rebbe Aaron, and he used to feed her and take care of her. And she never, she, she, she never forgave him for not choosing a different career. Um, somebody else, there's a, a Rob in Queens, Fabian Schoenfeld is his name. Rebbe Aaron once asked him to come and check in on her. So checked in and she was very happy and she asked him, young man, and what are you doing? He said he's going into rabbinics. He's becoming a rabbi, is a rabbi. She said, you know, my brother did the shtus, why do you also have to do a shtus like that? You know, go look for something a lot a lot more attractive than Rabbanis. She she told she had the same action as he had. She didn't budge either. She she was uh, his same cut of the same cloth. At any rate, in Slabotka the Alta watched over him. At 20, he, he, uh, he was in, in Slabotka, there was a caste system, and a younger Bachman speaking an older Bachar, and everything went with Madragas. He was a kid, he was 17, 18, and uh, the, 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 he was the best. I mean, he, he stood his own with the best in Slabotka. He was really off, uh, off the charts. And at the age of 20, he married Rabbi Zalman's daughter. Rabbi Zalman Meltzer was on a Chaim Briska's. Chashevsta Talmidim. Rabbi Zalman was a Rosh Hashiva. He had a Shiva in Slutsk, which was a town at the time in Poland, and he took him as a son-in-law. In 19, um, when the, in, at the end of the, well, between 1914 and 1918 was World War One. When World War One was over, Slutsk was in Russia. In Russia, the communists took power, and they um, and they made it their business to eradicate every yeshiva. So his father-in-law, Rabbi Zalman, was very wary of it, and he sent him to Kletsk, which was like 50 kilometers away, but it was over the border in Poland, just over the border, to make a branch with 50 bucks. He was in his late 20s, and he became possibly the youngest yeshiva in Europe at the time. If you see pictures of him, in Europe, with Gedolim, everyone has white beards. He's two heads shorter, completely brown, brownish beard, and animated. And you, you see in every picture. Um, he, he's full of he, he's full of action. His eyes are sparkling. There's, it's, it's almost no picture that doesn't have that. And he was a he was a younger man. I mean, he he you know he he uh, was 30 years old in 1922, and 40 years old in 1932. That that's uh, so, at any rate, in 1930, in 19, so he became Kletsk. Finally, the communists were just about to arrest his father in law. His father went up to Yisrael and became Rosh Hashiva and Chaim. So, the, and the rest of the yeshiva drifted across the border. It was, big, it was very dangerous. The Russians could shoot you if you tried to leave. And the Polish were anti Semites. These people had no right to be in Poland. So, it was, it was a very difficult situation. But he built up yeshiva in Kletsk, and in 1935 he made his first trip to America to raise money for the yeshiva. Um, he went the length and breadth of America to raise money, 
and he came back very, quite despondent about what Torah was like in America. There was no Torah in America. Um, let's let's explain what I meant. Um, everything was dead. There were um, rabbanim, plenty of rabbanim. There were kahilas that were from. There were a, a smattering. There were some small yeshivas, but all the yeshivas were very geared to you know putting out people. Yeshiva University in its various um, in, in its various galgulos and was basically a place to learn for smicha. One way or another, no chashu talmud chacham of note had come out that, you know, it was people who learned that smicha, became rabbanim, and that was it. The, the concept of a place where people would sit and learn just because learning is important and significant with a bren and a kach on a madrega that was chashiv didn't exist. And Baron tried to influence, he asked for Mendelowitz to start a Kailo. Um There was a, a he started a Bismarck at the time, Mendelowitz. They also started a small Kailo in Westchester, Nassau which eventually would morph into, would, would, would fold into Lakewood. Um, but that was it. And he came back, but that year in America was a foothold for him. When the war broke out in 1940, um, they were stuck. And like all the yeshiva bachim in, in, in Europe, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible situation. The Nazis were on one side, the communists on the other. The question was, would you die in the gas chamber or in Siberia? That was basically the choice. Um, in Lithuania, um, for short Kufet had a year of independence, and Vilna became part of Lithuania, and that's where all the yeshivas came to. Chaim said all the yeshivas come to Lithuania, to, to Vilna, and he took care of them. And Kletsk also came. Rebaran had a visa. A handful of Rosh Hashivas had visas to leave. And he was one of them. He wouldn't go without the yeshiva. Finally, when Russia invaded and took back Lithuania, Russia, Russia never liked independent countries. That wasn't one of her favorites. She was allergic to independent countries. And whenever a country became independent near her, she would always have a popular uprising to demand that Russia take over, and Kachava, they found some excuse, they took over Lithuania, and his life was on the line. He was a Rosh Hashiva in communist Russia, that's when he left. He left in 1941 with his family, and most of the yeshivas killed out. Almost very few were left from Kletsk. A handful ended up in Siberia, and from Siberia they came to America. He came to America in 1941, he came via Japan, Koba, and then he went on to San Francisco, and to New York. At, they made a, a Kabbalah spun of him. His name was world famous. I mean, he was the youngest Rosh Hashiva, and they were all in awe of him. Uh, you know, Reb Chaim Moises said, I'm leaving the door to Reb Aaron. And they, they were very, I mean, they, 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 there was an extraordinary um, respect for him. I, I heard a personal story from somebody that was standing at a model Pogramansky. He was from the Gedolim, and maybe somebody will speak about him in, in, in Litting, Slabotka. <coughs> He was in Telsen, in Slavotka, and he asked this person that I know, this person who told me the story, to call Rebaran Kotler about something. This was in Europe. He called Rebaran and referred to him as Kletzka Rosh Hashiva. You know, he spoke to him a third person. Is Kletzka Rosh Hashiva this? Kletzka Rosh Hashiva would like this? Whatever it is. When he hung up, Ramat Pamanski was Oysmensch. He said, I don't know if you have Mechila for, for being Mevaze 
Rebaran. He said, Kletzko Shashiva, the Rosh Shashiva. He says, Kletzko Shashiva means you're Yoshiva only of Kletzk. That was his stature as a man in his 40s. He came to America, and the first thing he did was he got off and they greeted him. He said, No one has a right to breathe for a minute. There are six million Yidin stuck there, and we need to do everything that we can to get them out. They spent the next two years. He, he sort of made a varatzola. There was something that existed, and he worked tirelessly to get things going. Um, l- let me say a few words about his personality, so we understand <laughs> something about his personality that's relevant. He was as blunt as they come. He was a very undiplomatic person. He was a very emistic a person, and he was um, passionate and intense. And and, and when something was when something was wrong, he, he was fired. He um, he met with government officials who hemmed and hawed and gave excuses, and he pushed. Um, he didn't speak any English. That was a nice, but but he um, there was a story that. But people would people would be in awe. They would like some. The, his translator, Irving Bunim, was his main translator, and they would sometimes tell him. Please let the rabbi talk because I'm just mesmerized by him talking, um, and then translate. They, they, they were looking. Roosevelt wanted to have nothing to do with saving the Jews, and most other government officials were either anti-Semitic or apathetic. There was a Secretary of Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, was an assimilated Jew, but he was a Jew, and um, and that was the address Baron found. He was a very Morgenthau was a very harsh family. I still remember they they had children and grandchildren running for the most important offices. It was, like a, it was a very established uh, family. And he went in, and, and the thing at the, on the table was to pay money to the Nazis as ransom for the Jews. The Nazis at a certain time were very, very tight in cash, and they wanted And the problem was raising the cash was a halbutzara, but getting it out there, it was illegal. It was helping aliens. And he spoke to Morgenthau, and Morgenthau said, you got to be kidding. I'm the Secretary of Treasury. This is the most illegal thing. There's no way I can help you. If I help you, I'm persona non grata in Washington. I can pack my bags and leave everything I do in Washington. And Reb Aaron blew up and he said, everything you have here and anything you have here is not worth the fingernail of one fellow Jew. And he said it and he told Bunim to translate. Bunim watered it down a lot. Rebaran saw the reaction of Morgenthau that it wasn't, that he hadn't told him what he said. And he said, tell him exactly, letter by letter, what I said. He was stunned, Morgenthau, and he put his head down. And then he said, Becholzeis, I'm a Jew, and I will do whatever I can to help. Lemay said the Nazis reneged on the deal, it wasn't again anymore. But that was him. When those after that was over, the, once he once the Vada Tzala was running by itself and whatever could be done could be done. I mean, he went on Shabbos sometimes. He, he was he was. Uh, I mean, he, he was and and they were able to send food and packages for people in Siberia who had nothing to eat, and um, food packages and clothing and stuff like that. He was nonstop. He was a whirlwind. That was uh, uh, he, he was always running, doing a mile a minute, three things at a time, incredible, incredibly energetic person, energetic person. He then decided that, that I mean, 
Torah has to be brought to America. Like we said before, there was Rabbanim, there were people learned for smicha, there were from things, the organizations, there was nothing that resembled the Beis Medrash. Reb Aaron's mohus was Torah. His hasmada was incredible. His rischa de raisa was ferocious. If, if you hear something to share that wasn't, that, that, that was wrong, he would tear you, to, he would rip you to shreds, literally. He would rip you to shreds. Someone told me he was in Yerushalayim, when he said a shit in Yerushalayim once, Yitzchayim, somebody asked something. He turned around to the head of Yitzchayim and he said, uh, who's your third grade Rebbe over here? They said, Rebbe so-and-so. Have him go to the class. You know, they put him down third grade. He, he, was, he was ferocious. Uh, and and he, his, his whole, I mean, he, when he got, he, he would get caught up in it and wouldn't stop. Uh, I mean, he, he, he learned for hours on end and, and always cocking and, 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 and passionate, incredible fire. And everything else, everything is dead unless you have that engine. That was his mohus, that without a live base medrash where people would turn on fire learning. And with, with the rischa, and, and, and it required two things in his mind. A place that you only learn, not, no, certainly no university, certainly nothing else, but, but also not for smicha, learning for learning's sake, which today we understand is kind of pashat. In those days it didn't exist. Um, I, I grew up a little bit later. I grew up in the 60s, kind of, 50s, 60s. Um, it was, in America everything was tachlis. And... He said, "We're building it. Let, let's." And he made like, "Let me let's describe some of the obstacles and some of the issues." Um, first of all, it was against the grain of everything in America, and to get Bachrim to to want to learn was 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 it was often why how how am I going to make a living? To get people to give money, people were were against it, and even the from people they were they were what we call today kind of modern orthodox, and they did, you're going to have gentlemen sitting and learning and not supporting their families, no career options, and nothing. We're not giving money for that, and he was and he was relentless. People would insult him. People would throw him out of the office. He would wait two hours. And then he would hear the guy inside say, "Tell Kotla to get the dash out of here, and I don't want to ever see him step foot here again." You know, he was, and it didn't phase him. He was, he, he was determined, out of sight. He, um, and it's interesting because the Hashpoi and Talmidim, I doubt that that a large percentage of his Talmidim ever understood his shear. His shear, if you take out Mitzvah Zerbarim, which is already a toned down version of it. It's incredibly complex. He, he was able to spin around a half a dozen sugyas together, and you know, this sheet has to be like this, and this has to be like this. And if we learn like this, we have a problem here, we have a problem there. And and he spoke a, a, a mile a minute. I mean, I mean, if you if listen to his tapes, even even Musa, they're almost impossible to understand. He talks extremely quick with, with, with extraordinary passion, and and he's all over the place. It just it just I mean, the speed and and and, and his hecke was. I don't think very many of us Talmidim got Ishurim, but the Demus of Rebaran was, was, was a Demus that drew people. His Emis, 
there was a purity in him there was nothing there was not a everything was emis there was no put on there was it was kulatira the emis his passion was and his fire and and his his whole most of learning he was a short thin frail person and when he spoke he filled the room just just with his energy and 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 his the, the ability that the, the the godless of learning where you could where you can have everything at your fingertips uh, you know at, at your command was incredible um he um, and it drew people just the, the sense of emis, the 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 contrast to the more um, politically astute rabbanim who compromised and spent time doing this and spent time doing that. As a bacher growing up, I remember that feeling. I was already sort of a second door, but that feeling of compare him to the rav who's always shaking hands, smiling, functions. Um, compromising, taking it easy, taking a trip here, taking a trip there, and and Rebaron, who was just pure emis, pure ash of Torah, had nothing of his own, and and just fire, and there was something that that emis drew people, and that and that was much beyond people. It's incredible because it made no sense. He um, he, he also and he established yeshiva. The yeshiva. Wasn't so big. He when he when it was nifted in 1962, it had maybe 140 talmidim, 135 talmidim. Certainly not more than 150. And yet, it was the beginning of Torah in America. Uh, all this, uh, the the vast majority of yeshivas were founded by him. So he established the yeshiva. He himself would be away most of the week. He was fundraising, and it was very hard to fundraise because people did not like him, they didn't want him, they didn't want his message, it was yeshiva. Besides that, he also didn't cut corners for the sake of fundraising. He once went into somebody, I think it was in Washington DC if I'm not mistaken, it was a Dr. Spat, who gave him, somebody introduced him to him and he gave him a donation of a thousand dollars, which in those days was a large, large sum of money. And Rabbi Ernest the way he davenes, he says he davenes by business person in a conservative shul, we're the building the Torah in America, the builders of Torah in America, the conservative movement. Reb Aaron laced into him mercilessly and, and with the full vim, did not thinking twice about what it would mean in terms of support to the yeshiva. I mean, the person could take back the check, could rip it, and he said, in the conservative movement, there's the churm of Yiddishkeit, there's the churm of America, it's not, you know, this, that, and the, the, the person was stunned. He'd never, he'd never been approached by someone of a nation with that type of... But people respected him because they felt that he's speaking with every fiber of his body. In America, besides the yeshiva, he got involved in two or three more things, a big picture, so that, that it's important to have a sense of the person. He had a tremendous sense of achrayis, and it wasn't only the yeshiva. He founded the day school movement in America. He founded he Tarmasori. He was part of that. He was he was very into it. He um, got involved in rabbinic affairs. He got involved in being miyasid yeshivas in different cities. He got involved in not involved. He, he, I should say he was the driving force. He was the driving force, and then he got involved in Eretz so in American things, he also was very, very involved in um, he was very, very involved in fighting different movements, conservative reform, 
um, not joining groups that have concerning foreign rabbis, um, anything that he felt was wrong, they tried to fool around with, with Gitna and Ketushin. He, he was a very canonistic person, and people did not um, people did not like him, and he he was I mean they respected him a tremendous all, but he was he was not an easy person. He didn't he wouldn't cut a corner, and it was cold Kule Emes. He was very involved in that Israel also. I can tell Echinachatzmoy felt was Yeshua, um, and in in Akudas Israel in Eretz Israel. I can tell you just a story from someone that I heard personally. This person was a Talmud of his in Kletsk. And he came to Montreal. He became a Rebbe. He didn't have much Parnassus. It was okay. And then he went to real estate and struck it rich. And the first $1,000 or $10,000 of Maisa money that he had, he decided he's coming down to Lakewood and give it to Rebaran Cutler personally. As I crossed the toe Talmud to Rebbe. He came down. Rebaran was very ecstatic about the news about how well he'd done, and he gave him the check. Rebaran said, this check is going to Chinechatzmoy. This is, you know, my I, I have an Achaitz Chinechatzmoy, and I feel they need the money now more, and this and that. And that's what he went to. He he, he um, was involved in, in many of Israel affairs. He would travel there to urge people to vote for Aguda, and he was involved in Tarmasura, was involved in, in, in the Gurus Rabbanim to push them when he felt that they weren't um, strong enough on certain stands. I, I want to speak about some of his midas that I think are the first, the, the defining midah of Rebaran was his age of Taira, he, he, his, his, his absorption, learning, and the passion, the fire was incredible. That was Dashbon and Talmidim, nothing else was. He didn't say, he said Musash was occasionally, but that wasn't. He was his, his fire. Two, um, he had a tremendous midas for emis. Um, he, 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 he despised somebody saying something that wasn't true. Uh, the famous story is where they designed uh, receipts for the yeshiva that, that looked a little nicer than the yeshiva did. It had, uh, I, I guess, a, a projected sense of what the yeshiva would look like, some flower beds and stuff. He said, it's sheka, sheka seva Somebody once came to him with an offer. Two brothers said they would each give seventy-five thousand dollars, provided a third person, a certain, a certain third person would give five thousand dollars. I don't, whatever. I don't know what the chesed is for. They went to that third person, and he got very upset. And he said, "They're not going to tell me what to do. I'm, I refuse." So someone told Rebbein, "I have an idea. We could be mezakeh that person get five thousand dollars somebody else. Be mezakeh that third person. Take it." And and uh, Bimel, it's it's uh, it's as if he gave it. It's technically true, is that? Rabbi wouldn't hear of it. He said, "You can't build Torah on foundations of sheker. It's it's gonev stas. The people had whatever the stupid chesed they had. That's what they wanted, and I will not do it." He was extru- his midas emes was very. I know a story from the family that I heard. His um, his daughter. He had a son and a daughter. His daughter went through some very very rough times, and. She was brilliant. She was. She had his head, and she needed some outlet, and she she was she wanted to go to college, and he was okay with it. He felt her in her situation. She needed to go. He said he doesn't care any profession. The only profession that you can go into is law, because 
you learn how to lie. And that's, that's something that, that's Ashkos in the Nefesh. Everything else, with fear this, that, you know, he, he was confident that she would outsmart. But lying was something that would be inherently something. Um, I also want to point out something. Today, everybody's frustration is that their parents sent them to the yeshiva and they're not so happy coming to yeshiva. In those days, parents did not want to go to yeshiva. Most people sitting in Lakewood, parents were quite upset with it. Um, and Rebaran had to deal with that. It wasn't Pashit. Um, you know, many people just picked up and left to, to there, and that, and that was something he had to deal with. So, his risk of the rice was defining Mida, his emiss was defining Mida, and one more thing, I think Achrayas, he never felt that something is not his problem. Um, I heard this um, from Rebel Yeshveh, I mean, I, I know this from, from, the, from, the, from the Tzura, but Rebel Yeshveh, the last time he spoke, um, the last time he was well enough to speak was at the 50th year gathering of, of the yeshiva Philly. And he said all the following story. He said he was once sitting and learning, and Rabbi Aaron came over to him and showed him a check of $300 that someone had sent. And Rabbi Aaron turns to him and he says, Tell me, who do you think sent this check? A Balabas? Balabatim despised me. He said, the Rebbein So Rebellion said, I was young and brash. And I asked Rebbe Aaron, um, why, why are you drain me a cup with this? Like, why are you bother me? So Rebbe Aaron turned very serious and he said, I was thinking about you last night and I decided you want to be a Marbet's Torah and you, and you need to know and understand. So Rebellion in, interpreted something in this. He said like this, he said, it was long before I opened the yeshiva. Why didn't he wait for me to come and you know, open the yeshiva? He'd come say a shekloli, and then he would teach me the, the tricks of the trade, of the, the checks, the this, that. He said, the Rebbe wanted, the Rebbe wanted to teach me that the side of yeshiva is not the shurim, not the shmuzen, it's the achrayas that you take. That, that you take responsibility for entire, for everything. And he did. He 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 established yeshivas in every corner, in every organization. Anything that needed to be done, he put himself into. He he he. In Europe, he didn't dream of paskening. In America, he had shuvas that he wrote. He 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 he, he realized that there were very few poskimen around, and he was called to paskin, and, and he had shuvas and he paskin and so on. Um, he, very very tremendous vachrayas. Um, he was. I just wanted one or two stories that are very particularly uh, moving of, about him. Um, one was someone. He was once speaking for a group of Balbatim to Karjan to give money, and he said over about Yisachan's Zvulin and the Schar, and then he said over the Chazal Vloi Oid, Ella they were Maktim, Ella they that it was Maktim. Uh, so someone asked him, Rabbi says, Mela, we get equal schar, but more than you. Why, why do we deserve more schar and more than you? So he stood a second and he said, and then he got excited, he said, Avadi, you deserve a lot more schar because I have all the now. I have learning and you don't. 
So of course you deserve more schar than I do. And and it was it was something that was that was um, it, it was him. It, it, it wasn't a stack answer. He, he he didn't have a light side to himself. And a second story that's particularly moving. He once walked to the base medrash and he saw somebody who had very difficult kishonos sitting and going over something again and again and again and again. And Reb Aaron started crying, and he said, "I will never be zocha to the amelus b'tor of that person. I have it easy. I'm not going to be zocha to that amelus b'tor." It's an incredible uh, finish made with a vart that he said, a very famous vart of his. He said, he, he spoke about Kesar Shaltaira. Ramam says that if a person wants to Kesar Shaltaira, um, he shouldn't lose even one night of his life. So, Rabaran's Hagdara was jewels and diamonds are, are worth by the piece. And each piece has a value, more and less. A crown is a garment you can wear with a patch. A crown. It's Shiva's lies in the Shlemus. And anything missing in a crown reduces it from a crown to a lot of diamonds strung together. So he said, Kisushal Torah is something that transcends the pieces. There's a certain Shlemus, a certain identification with the Kalolis of Torah, that if somebody, that's why the Ram says, if you miss even one night, if it's how many hours you learn, so say that, now less, you give a little bit less. But missing a piece on the puzzle is, is, takes it from the realm of being a, a Dabashalim to pieces. He was Nifter in 1962, he was 70 years old. Um, I remember the Vaya was there at the Vaya. I also was there to see him once in my life. He went to buy the Lovim and Esrogim. And we used to live in a little brownstone on the, gra- on the bottom, the basement. There was a place they would sell the Lovim and Esrogim before Sukkis. So he went there. Um, it was very interesting. I, I don't remember this, obviously, but I think Rabbi Yaakov, some other gdolman, I, I think it was a place where they sold, I guess, quality love, and other gdolman went there. Someone else was very careful to do it privately. He said, because if I pick one, you know, people will say the other's puzzle, whatever it is. Rabbi I think, didn't care. He, like he said, what I leave behind, other people are going to go and, 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 and take. You know, if, they, if they know that I touch these, they'll, they'll, you know, you'll, you'll have more customers. And, and he, was, he, he felt he would be helping the person. But he was nifted in 1962. I remember the I, I was a young boy, and uh, I remember being, being taken to Levaya. I remember standing there in Calvary Shul. I, 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 couldn't, I, I remember even bits and pieces of that spadem, but... Um, what was very extraordinary was he was nifted on Thursday. They asked the New York Times to write an obit about him. And they asked, who are you talking about? He says, a rabbi, where? In Lakewood, New Jersey. And he said, you know, you, I guess you don't understand what New York Times is. We don't, you know, a, a hick rabbi from someplace doesn't make the New York Times. And they didn't. Um, on Sunday, he had the biggest Leviathan New York had seen. Um, there were the, the lowest estimate was 25,000 people. In those days, they didn't have those type of events. 20, I remember it was a big street, Allen Street, it was, was closed off, and people, people, it was, it was all along the length of it. And they were desperately calling, the papers were calling desperately, who knows who this person is that they had his funeral for? 
he was unknown. In America in those days, orthodoxy was not stark. Certainly not the yeshiva world didn't have anybody. It wasn't, and it was a it was his his patira sort of um, gave the uh, gave that shot out. But when it was nifta, there were maybe 135 people in America learning. Um, it's not so long ago, 1962. Um, by the time his son was nifta, Pshnei in 1982. There was 82, 83 was Nifta. There was already um, probably a thousand people in yeshiva. That was the way the numbers went. But the breakthrough in terms of this, the idea that the heart of Kaiserol is a place where people sit and kachan learning. That's the only thing they think about. It's the only thing they live. It's the only thing they breathe. The the the, the idea that everything else flows from there. That that. Um, you know, yes, the Kaleidoscope branches out and everybody does different things, but the Neshama Kaleidoscope is there. Um, the Midas HaEmes, not to keep compromising on different things, but to go to Emes all the way. Um, those, that was, that was the, 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 the foundation for what we have today. It's, uh, it's, incredible, um, it's incredible. A person put in an incredible Kufa um, to, to, um, uh, to establish it. I mean, there were different sayings. I think those said, Rebaran is the next door is going to be on Rebaran's shoulders, and it was. The, that's where it came from.